We are in a series on the names of God, and we've covered quite a few, but we've got lots left to do. So please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, please grab a black one under the seats in front of you. If you don't have one, if you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, you can take that Bible with you. That's our gift to you. But we want to um, study three names of God this morning and to investigate the character of this God um, through his names. So as you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, let me pray. Lord, thank you um, that you have unfailing love for us. Thank you that you are a solid rock, um, that all other ground is sinking sand. Help us to place our feet squarely on that foundation. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is true and unchanging, which we can trust. Um, It is alive, it is powerful, it speaks into our lives. Um, It convicts us of sin, it gives us the the message of salvation and tells us the story of our universe from beginning to end. And behind it all um, is, is you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So this morning, Lord, we need to um, be affected by this word. We need to not just hear these words and let them go in one ear and out the other, but we need um, you to hold up the mirror of your word in front of us that we might see what is true and real. We need you to um, perform heart surgery on us. Uh, And Lord, we ask this morning most specifically that if anyone in this room does not know you, in the way that the Bible talks about a relationship with the creator of the universe, Lord, that this morning they might hear and understand the gospel, that they might repent of their sins, put their faith and trust in you, and receive the gift of eternal life. Lord, we know that you can do that. You've done that for so many of us, and we pray that you would continue to work, that we'd see evidence of that here at Village Bible Church. And as we send out um, people from our church, that we would see um, your work in their lives as well. So, um, Lord, please be with um, with Tim and Kirsten as they head back to Spain in the coming weeks. Lord, we pray that you would supply all of their financial need before they go. That you would help your people um, all over um, the world to to be able to increase support, to add them to support. Lord, that that they would be able to have the support they need to do the work of telling um, Muslims in North Africa about Jesus. So, God bless your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and as Pastor Ron has sketched out the series for this first part, we've been kind of moving somewhat chronologically through the Bible, and um, new names of God appear. And so we have gone through the first four books and looked at several names of God. At the beginning of the series, we talked about um, some of the names of God that span uh, the whole Bible. Um, So Adonai is the word Lord in Hebrew. Kurios is the word Lord in Greek, and those appear throughout. Um, Yahweh is Lord in all caps in your English Bible, and that is the covenant name of God that appears throughout the Old Testament. Um, We have names of Jesus and names of the Holy Spirit yet to come, and we will close out this series around Christmas time um, with some of the specific names of, of God and of the Lord Jesus that have to do with the Christmas story. This morning, we want to look um, at our our first name of God, which is the living God. The living God. And that appears here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So um, back up to verse 22, and let's read through 27. Deuteronomy 5, 22 through 27. 
These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Yahweh our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that Yahweh our God will say and speak to us all that Yahweh our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. Well, here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a specific context that helps us understand what's going on. Um, Deuteronomy um, is a, a book that means second law. And in the midst of most of Deuteronomy, Moses is repeating the law a second time to the children of Israel. This is at the end of their 40 years of wandering as they're about to cross the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua and take the land of Canaan, the promised land. So before they do so, um, all the people that were 20 years or older um, that lived in the nation of Israel at the time of the rebellion, you'll remember that um, uh, the the 12 spies were sent in to go scope out the land. They came back. Um, Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, had a a positive report that the Lord God would help them defeat the land. But the other ten spies were scared. They communicated that to the children of Israel. And so as a punishment, um, God would not allow anyone over the age of 20 to enter the promised land. And thus the 40 years of wandering began. So the only men that would be able to cross the Jordan River would be Joshua and Caleb, these two faithful Spies, And so it is here um, on the plains of Moab. They're overlooking uh, the Jordan River and the Rift Valley and they can see across the way the promised land. They stop and Moses essentially in a, in a series of sermons repeats and repeats and repeats Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and what God had said to remind this generation how they were to go into the land. So in this section, um, he's actually repeating just before this the Ten Commandments. Um, the Ten Commandments uh, were given as, uh, in one sense, a summary of the whole law. And as he gives the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of what happened at Mount Sinai when the commandments were given. And so you see here the terrifying aspect of God communicating with his people. In fact, the name, the living God here, is given by the people for God. And so, um, in one sense, God does not reveal this name directly, although we understand that God is, is moving in Moses to write this down for our benefit, but that the people of God respond to what they've seen, they respond to what they've heard, they respond to the experience of God at Mount Sinai, and they call Him the living God. And, and in Hebrew, the, the word is chai. Everyone say that one, that's a fun one. Chai. Yeah, chai, gotta get back to your Chai. Have a fun one time editing that one, Don, for the podcast. <laughs> um, chai is related to, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, Lachaim, to life. Okay, so that's where this word um, comes from. It, it just means living or alive, um, specifically as opposed to being dead. Okay, not 
living. Um, and so it is a, a, a very basic understanding, a very basic word. Um, so El Chai or Elohim Chai is the living God. But you'll notice here in Deuteronomy 5 and throughout the scriptures, many times the concept of the living God is applied or has to do with Yahweh, the covenant God, speaking to Israel. So when, when Yahweh speaks, he proves, he shows, he demonstrates that he is the living God, for only a living God could speak. And so those two um, ideas are tied very closely together. It also has to do with um, power. So we studied the word Elohim, which is the basic word for God in the Hebrew. Um, And one scholar said to refer to God as the living God is to point to him as one to be reckoned with, who has all the powers of deity to bring to bear on any situation. So this is the God who reveals himself. This is the God who we see. And you'll find a reference to the living God about 28 times in the Old Testament and several more in the New Testament. So there's not enough time to cover all the bases where the living God is referenced to. But you have tools at your disposal on your, on your smartphone, on your computer. Uh, in the back of your Bible, there's this old thing called the concordance that has some of these things. And you can easily look up references to the living God and see these for yourself. But we are going to go look um, at a few of these places. So please turn to First Samuel 17. First Samuel 17. This uh, has been since I was two years old, my favorite Bible story, the story of David and Goliath. My dad used to come home from work, and in all of his five foot seven stature, he became Goliath. And uh, I was David. I think my mom had like a little tape cassette of the stories of the Bible and it was kind of dramatized and so I would call out Goliath and sling him dead and then chop his head off and then man it's time to do this again so I'd sling him dead and chop his head off and sling him dead and chop his head off before he even got out of his work clothes. So I have been loving the story of David and Goliath since um, I was a small child Um, and I I love the story and and as, as I've grown I've seen different nuances in the story and grown to see um, the story for more than just the uh, fun boy adventure chopping off heads and killing giants thing. Um, but I've seen what it's in the Bible for. Why is it here? So in First Samuel 17, you'll remember the story that David's three older brothers have gone to fight the Philistines. Um, they have joined the armies of King Saul to fight. And David is sent to go deliver cheese and snacks and... Um, just to, to see how things are going. And of course, to a young man who may be in his uh, mid to late teens, this would have been exciting to leave um, the sheep behind with someone else to go visit the battle where it's happening. We see David gets there and is very interested in what is happening. And he happens to arrive when this giant, this champion from the Philistine army, walks out and issues his challenge. The challenge he's been issuing for more than a month to the suddenly wimpy um, Israelite army. And in verse uh, 25, you'll see that that the the promise has been made by the army, saying, kind of cluing David in as to what will happen, what will be offered to the man who, who takes his courage and defeats the giant. And so in verse 26, David responds in kind of a repetition, but he said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine. Now, he could have stopped there. Because that's an apt description. He is a Philistine. What happens to the man that kills our enemy? However, he continues, and this is very important to see. 
and takes away the reproach from Israel. So David's arrived and he, he feels, he senses, he understands that this army um, is scared to death. The armies of Israel are terrified of Goliath and there is no courage left. And David senses that and he sees it as a reproach. This is shameful. Who, what's going to happen to the man who takes away this reproach? And then he says this, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David, even as a young man, understands that the Philistines are a polytheistic people that worship many gods. He understands that there is a difference, a gulf between the beliefs of the Israelites and the beliefs of the Philistines. And he says, how can this man, who's going to let this man, this uncircumcised Philistine, get away with talking to the armies of the living God this way? Not just any God, the living God. And so David has this, this jealousy for God's name, for God's honor that he wants to protect. And the, the story continues. And of course, um, David speaks up and his older brother Eliab kind of just says, bashes him. You just want to come and see how things are going. You know, get away from here. Of course, Eliab is also scared of this giant. So he wants his spunky younger, younger brother to get out of here. And the words of David kind of filter through the army. And, and Saul hears, finally, someone wants to fight this Philistine. So they, Saul sends for David. David gets to the king in verse 32. And David walks into the king's presence. And before he's, um, before he's spoken to, he says, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Uh, which had to be a little bit comical for this young man who is not served in the army uh, at this point to uh, be so gung-ho about fighting the Philistine. And Saul says, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. David is not cowed. Verse 34, he said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, watch this, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Wow, that's, that's pretty incredible. How did you do that? And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Do, do you, are you getting that picture in your mind? Are you like, turn to Animal Planet in your mind. Okay, this isn't Shark Week. This is Lion Week. All right? And um, David is, is in hand-to-hand combat with big beasts. And so he is saying, well, I have, I have experience. Here's my resume. All right, here's, here's what I've killed before. And he says in verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he, why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. Why does this Goliath, why does this giant need to be taken care of? Because he's defied the armies of the living God. David has more of a concern than just to um, get a wife, although he is concerned about that. He thinks that's a good idea. If he, if he defeats Goliath, he gets a wife in the deal. So that's nice. But we see that the, the deeper concern for David is the name of God, is the, the reputation of God. And so he is willing to put his life in his hands to fight this Philistine. Look at verse 37. And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. Now it doesn't say paw in your version, but it's the same exact word that he uses for the animals. Their paw. And, and David is likening Goliath to just another big beast that stands in the way, and so he is going to defeat this 
giant. What, a, what courage um, that comes to us from the words of David. But it reminds us that this is not just some manly bravado. This is not just some kind of cultural machismo to take out this giant. This is a concern for the living God. For the living God. Well, as you, as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see um, other stories such as when the Assyrian king comes to try to take Jerusalem. And it's understood that he sends men to mock not just the king, Hezekiah, but to mock the living God. He mocks him purposefully. Then Hezekiah, 12 verses later in 2 Kings 19, appeals to Yahweh as the living God when asking for rescue. So Sennacherib, the, the Syrian king, is going to mock the living God, but Hezekiah is going to appeal to the living God for rescue. In the Psalms, we hear about the living God, and twice um, the living God is in reference to um, David seeking out God when he's in desperate situations. And so he's, in, in Psalm 42 too, he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 84 too, he says, My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This living God is the one that the Israelites recognize. And, and we know um, that the, the Jews are, are distinct in world history because they're monotheists. Um, they believe in one God, the living God. And in the minds and hearts of the Israelites, he was the living God in large part because they understood the other gods to be dead. They were not real. They could not speak. So in Jeremiah 10.10, 10, the prophet says this, But Yahweh is the true God. Okay, as opposed to false, of course. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Jeremiah, over and over again, actually, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, they understand that Yahweh is the true, the real, the authentic, the genuine God, the living God. And they actually, in times of, of, um, of outright sarcasm, uh, begin to make fun of the dead gods of the surrounding nations. They, are, they, are, they have mouths carved on the wood, but they can't speak. They carve ears into the stone, but they can't hear. And in contrast, here is Yahweh, the living God. And this makes such an impression on a pagan king in the book of Daniel that he begins to call God the living God. Do you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel is, is eventually thrown in the lion's den for um, keeping his word and keeping his practice of praying to God. And uh, the king Darius is kind of tricked into making a law about not praying to anyone but himself. And so he must throw David for Daniel into the lion's den. And it's interesting that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, De sorry, wrong king, Darius comes near the den the morning after Daniel's thrown in. Now you understand that this is, a, this is an, a mode of execution. So there's not really any question as to what happens when you throw a, a man into a pit with hungry lions and then cover it up as to what's going to happen. This is not multiple choice. He goes in, he doesn't come out. <laughs> Okay, he is eaten by the lions. And, and yet Darius comes close to the lion's den in Daniel 6. And he says, he cries out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And, and I, just, I, I just, I feel like 
in this, in this instance, that God answers Darius. Because Darius' question is, is your God, is he able to do this? And what kind of God could rescue a man from hungry lions in a pit? Well, Darius recognizes the living God. Daniel responds that God sent his angel and protected him. And so in response, uh, Darius throws the other guys in the lion's den and they're eaten. And he says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the, guess what? The living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. This is the living God, the God who can actually work in the world. We even see reference to the living God in the New Testament and probably the most famous passage is Matthew 16. Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, what is that, what's everyone saying about me? What's everyone saying? Who, who am I? And they say, well, you know, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, some say this, some say that. And he says, but what do you say? Okay, that, that's what everyone's saying. You've been spending time with me. You've seen my miracles. You've seen my teaching. What do you say? And Simon Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The son of the living God. And so um, th- this Jew, Peter, uh, knows God as the living God, has grown up. He's heard all these stories, all the scripture that we just read and looked at. And, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now what's very interesting about this passage, and if you come to Israel with us next June, you'll see this, is he's in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi um, is a place of, of, of just disgusting, gross pagan worship that involved all kinds of things I, I won't even say on stage today. And, and it's in this very place, in this region, that Peter identifies Jesus as the son of the living God. So that even though people would come from miles around to worship the various gods at this location, that Peter says, no, you're the son of the living God. The Apostle Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, they come into um, a city and they are recognized as Hermes and Zeus. Um, and so the, the, the people start to throw a party. Get the bulls, let's, let's slaughter them, let's have a party, let's worship these men because they seem to be like gods that have come down to us. And, and Paul says, no, please, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It is this living God that we, in fact, worship, that we, in fact, um, that we, in fact, live for, that we believe in. And throughout the scriptures, this is given to us as God's nature. He is alive. And this is given um, in various ways. But there's a few implications, or two implications that we can take from this. Probably a lot more. <laughs> I chose two. First one, um, there in your notes, is idolatry of any kind is stupid and foolish. And I thought about not using those words until I looked up some of these passages. And there's actually, um, in fact, I don't remember if it's Psalm 115 or Psalm 135 there, but you can go back this afternoon and look at those. One of them describes the worship of idols as stupid and foolish. So I'm just using Bible words, okay? Stupid and foolish. Idolatry is stupid and foolish. In Psalm 115 and in Psalm 135, there are the similar descriptions as in Isaiah and Jeremiah. These gods don't do anything. 
They're just stone and wood that have been carved. That's it. In fact, the stone and the wood was created by God. How foolish to worship the thing, right? Rather than the one that made the thing. In fact, Paul says something about that in Romans 1, doesn't he? He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It would be like if you received something in your home um, that helped you do something better. If it was a new refrigerator or a new oven or a, a new gadget, whatever it was, and the person who actually made it was there with you, it, it would be like if you thanked the appliance and not the person. It, it doesn't make any sense. Thank you, refrigerator, for cooling our food. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, the, the refrigerator does not reply to you uh, unless it like shoots some ice out at that time or something, but... That's, that's, that's stupid and foolish. Thank the person. <laughs> they made it. They designed it. Or, or if you had a friend who helped you install it, thank the friend who installed it. You don't, you don't thank the appliance. And this is a similar thing. Why would you worship the rock when there's a God who made the rock? That's dumb. Why would you do that? And see, that's what sin is. It's stupid and foolish. And we, 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 we're, we're twisted and broken. And so our tendency is to be stupid and foolish and to look down at the creature rather than up to the creator. John Calvin said, when the attribute living is ascribed to God, it is for the purpose of distinguishing between him and dead idols who are nothing. Another scholar, Craig Blomberg, said, um, back referring to the Matthew 16 passage, that Peter adds the adjective living, which is characteristically a Jewish way of referring to God to distinguish him from lifeless idols and also a reminder that only Yahweh has life in himself, which he can impart to others. And that's point number two in your implications there. The living God can give life to dead people and dead bodies. The living God can give life to dead people and dead bodies. Uh, There's a a whole uh, passage in John chapter 6 uh, where Jesus describes himself as the bread of, anybody know? The bread of life. Okay, life. And in that passage, he describes how not only is he the bread of life, but he can offer life. The bread that he gives, gives life. So because God, and by implication his son Jesus, who is God, because he is the living God, he is able to impart life. He's able to, to give life. So Jesus in John 5, just previous to that passage, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's conversion. <laughs> That's changing teams. This is what the living God is able to do. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then not only that, but Romans eight eleven says that the, the, the same Spirit who in power raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise our dead bodies to life again so that we might live eternally with God. See, this, this body's not going to last. Anybody can attest to that? It's, it's, it's kind of wearing out. It's not working so well, and it's not, it's not going to last for eternity, that's for sure. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> we get a new one. <laughs> we need a new one in order to live with God in eternity. But that's what this living God can do. See, the, the living God sent his son 
And that son, prior to doing the ultimate act that would give us life, stood in front of a tomb where his friend had been dead for four days. And the living God, named Jesus, spoke words, and a dead person got up and walked out of a tomb. Anybody seen that happen this week? I mean, anybody walk by a graveyard and see, that doesn't happen. But the living God has the power to do that. Can you imagine being there, by the way? Uh, Martha's like, don't do that. It's going to stink really bad. I don't know if the smell went away, like immediately like that, when he said, Lazarus, come out. By the way, that story is so phenomenal. Jesus speaks words. He just speaks words. And a dead man rises up and walks or waddles or I don't know what he's doing. He's got the strips on him and he comes out of the tomb. Can you imagine being there? Like, wait, wait, what, what just happened? All he did was speak. Well, he's the living God and he speaks life. But you know what? Another, a further implication that is not in your notes is that the, the God who can impart life can also take life. He is the living God. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, he says, See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. In Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, 6, she says, Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and he raises up. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so the message this morning is the living God can impart life and does impart life to those who obey the gospel and repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And it is in that way that the living God imparts life. So, so be warned, be warned that there, there is a living God. He is alive and he is real and he's also a judge and he also is holy. And he must deal with his creatures in that way. So don't harden your heart against this living God. He, he offers eternal life. He offers eternal life as a gift. Accept that offer. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. The second name we want to cover is Yahweh Tzur. Or Yahweh Tzuri. Yahweh is the rock. Or many times in the Bible it's Yahweh is my rock. And this first appears in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So quickly turn there. Deuteronomy 32, it appears three times in the Song of Moses. So right here at the end, Moses is about to be taken up on Mount Nebo. God's going to show him Canaan, and then God's going to strike him dead and bury him. And now Joshua's turn to lead the people. So right before that, Moses sings a song that kind of recounts some of Israel's history, reminds them to be careful to obey the laws of Yahweh. And in it, he calls God the rock three separate times. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 actually says this, For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Go to verse 15. Moses continues, But Jeshurun, that's another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God 
who gave you birth. God here is, is called Tsur, the rock. Um, it, it can be re- referenced to a boulder, um, but it is just the general word for rock. Um, and, and throughout Scripture, it's used in several different ways, but mainly for some kind of protection or refuge, um, safety. So you run to the rock, right? Run to the rock that is higher than I, David said. Um, it also provides shade. Okay, it provides rest. It's a place where you can escape, where you can get away. So throughout Scripture, it is used this way. David specifically loves to call God my rock, this personal and intimate God. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Who is a rock except our God? And he says in uh, the end of Second Samuel 22, Yahweh lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. So David's, David's experience is that he ran from Saul for 10 years. Where did he run to? He ran to the rocks, the caves, the crags, the canyons to, to get away. You know, Israel is, is a land of rocks. So when you read your Bible and you see wilderness or desert, don't think um, Arabian Peninsula and endless sand. It's just rocks. And there are rocks everywhere. In fact, there's so many rocks um, that they don't, need, they don't put flowers on graves. They just put rocks. The rock's not going anywhere, and they're everywhere. You just, you know, turn around and pick up a rock. This is the experience of the Israelites, and it's the experience of David. But not only was he experienced with stones, he was experienced with rocks that were able to hide him from his enemies. And he, he understood that God is like a rock, a place that he could escape to, that he could run to. In Psalm 62, 7, it says, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Psalm 94, 22, But Yahweh has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. In, in Isaiah 44, a passage that again talks about the, the foolishness of worshiping false gods, he is called the rock again. There is no rock. I know not any. The prophet Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Is it any surprise then that Jesus tells a story about the wise man who built his house on the... I've got to think, I've, I never thought about this till this week, I've got to think that the Jewish people would have seen capital R, rock there, rather than just a rock. They were so familiar with calling God, Yahweh, their rock, that when Jesus talks about building their house on the rock, that I think it's, my, it's clear that he is speaking of building your house on God. To, to build your house meant not just to put up the, the, the four corners and the roof, it meant to build your life, to build your, your family, to build your dynasty on the rock. And so when, when Peter tells Jesus, that he is the son of the living God, Jesus turns around and says, and I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock in Greek. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That the words that, that, that Peter spoke, and, and in some sense, Peter himself would become the rock that Jesus would build and is building his church on. It is this picture of God as rock that implication number one shows our God is unchanging. So he will always be there. The rock 
does not get worn away. And you can say, well, some rocks do. I know that, that, I know that rocks do. That's, that, but the picture of the rock is that the rains come and the winds blow and the flood rise, right? But the house on the rock stood firm, right? <laughs> okay? Um, this, this picture of the rock is unchanging. It'll be there. You go to Yosemite Valley and you look up at the rock. You see El Capitan and you see Half Dome and these, these, these massive pieces of rock that aren't going anywhere. <laughs> they're, they're there. They are strong. They are huge. They are unchanging. So our God is unchanging. That means he provides us protection. He is faithful. Isaiah 26, 4 says, Trust in Yahweh forever, for Yahweh is an everlasting rock. So the, the picture is he's a rock, so you can trust him. He's not going anywhere, so you can trust him. You know, if you have a friend who's flighty and they, they, they're kind of, they, they, never, you never know when they're going to be around, you can't trust that person. But here is God, the rock. He's not going anywhere. You turn around, there he is. There, there's the rock. I can trust in him. I thought of the song I learned as a, as a little boy. Praise the name of Jesus. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. In him will I trust. Praise the name of Jesus. A second implication. Our rock has given his church a rock-solid foundation. Our rock has given his church a rock-solid foundation. The Apostle Paul said that this, this church of Gentiles and Jews and people from all kinds of traditions and cultures were brought together and they're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being, like we sang this morning, the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, God has set the church on a, on a sure, firm foundation. That's, that's why we can, we can know that even though we're losing very important pieces, parts of this church body, it's not about the parts, right? Um, it's about the rock that the church is built on. And so the, the church continues because the rock that it's built on is sure, is secure, it is firm, it is trustworthy. It is this rock-solid foundation that we are to go back to. Cultures will change, fads will change, revivals may come and go, but there is a sure rock in our God and we can trust Him. The last name that we're going to cover this morning is um, Yahweh is peace. The Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Shalom. Um, that's probably the extent of most of our Hebrew. <laughs> shalom. So we say hi to somebody. Um, we say Shalom. Uh, but this word is one of the most complex words in the Bible. And for God to apply it to himself really is, is saying something. In Judges chapter 6 is where this name is given to God. And it is the story of Gideon. And Gideon lives in a time in which Israel is humiliated. They're subjugated by the Midianites. Um, in fact, we, the scene opens with Gideon in a wine press beating out the, the wheat. You, you don't beat out wheat in a wine press. That doesn't work very well. You beat out wheat on top of a hill where it's flat, where the wind can come across, so that when you winnow it and you throw it up, the chaff will blow away and the wheat will remain. If you're doing it in a wine press, that is not a good place to be doing it. Why is he in a wine press? He's hiding. He can't be out in the open, or he's going to have his wheat stolen. He might get, just, he might get um, beat up or killed. And so here's little Gideon hiding in a little wine press, doing his thing, 
And I think it's interesting that the angel of the Lord appears to a nobody guy named Gideon from a nothing family and a nothing tribe in a nowhere important place. There's nothing, nothing really great about Gideon. He's not from a prominent tribe. He's not from a prominent family. He's hiding. There's nothing good happening. And yet the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and calls him mighty warrior. (laughs) And Gideon takes a while to warm up to that. Um, But Gideon then begins to speak with the angel of the Lord and he wants to give him something. And the angel says, well, bring some meat and present it to me. Verse 21 of Judges chapter 6. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So just imagine that. <laughs> you're, you're, in a, you're in a wine press kind of just doing your little duty here and all of a sudden the angel of the Lord shows up. Not only that, you, you've tried to present something nice for this angel person guy and he touches it with his staff and goes Gandalf and is gone. I mean, Poof, he's gone. He just disappears. And Gideon's like, ah! He's, he is terrified. He is scared. And he perceived, verse 22, that he was the angel of the Lord. So apparently at that point, he didn't realize exactly who he was talking to until, until the magic act. <laughs> and then Gideon said, Alas, O Adonai Yahweh, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Verse 23, the angels disappeared, but Yahweh said to him. So the angel's gone, and it's, it appears that, that Yahweh speaks to him in the darkness, in the wine press, and he says, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. <sighs> oh, good. Um, Gideon had it right. He was in the presence of the angel of the Lord, and he was freaked out. Uh, just like um, Samson, Samson's mom and dad do later on in the book of Judges, they're like, we've seen the Lord, we're toast. We're dead. It's like Isaiah in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen the king. That is the right way to understand being in the presence of God and his messengers. And yet the Lord says, peace be to you. So, verse 24, Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and called it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Now this is interesting. There's no peace. The Midianites are in control. The Midianites... Are, are subjugating um, the Israelites. They're doing whatever they want. They show up whenever they want, take whatever they want, leave. There's no peace. And yet, in this context, Gideon says, Yahweh is peace. So it does not, this is interesting for us, it does not require, there's not required things to be peaceful for us to understand that God is a God of peace. Because often it's in things are least peaceful that we need to understand that, that our God is peace. That we need to rest in Yahweh Shalom. So Shalom is, is a diverse word. It's got many nuances and shades. It's a greeting like Salam in Arabic. They're related words. It can mean welfare, prosperity, wholeness, as well as what we usually think of as peace as the absence of hostility or the absence of war. Um, it's a general idea. It has a ton of different kinds of meanings. So let me just use one example. Um, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a verse that many of you probably know. The ESV says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Or if you memorize in the NIV, it says, uh, plans for, for, to prosper you. That is the word shalom in one of its many uses. So what, what, is, what kind of plans does Yahweh have for his people? He has plans of shalom and not for evil. And so it does not merely mean taking away conflict. It, it, means, it means giving 
wholeness. It means giving an overarching sense of peace. In fact, five times in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. We know that Jesus is promised to be the the Prince of Peace. And so this is not just some kind of military word. This is not just an armistice or a treaty. This is much more than that. This is restoration of relationship. Um, This is something that that goes beyond just our limited understanding of peace. This This is everything that we need and could want. It's peace. So implications in response to Yahweh Shalom. Number one, you can have peace now and be assured of a coming universal peace. You can have peace now and be assured of a coming universal peace. Who is this one who's promised to come in Isaiah 53? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Romans 5.1 promises, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not, a lack, that's not just the lack of hostility. Is that all that God does when he justifies us? Okay, no more war. No, he, he gives us. He gives and he gives. And he gives wholeness and prosperity. And some of that is experienced now. And some of that awaits um, the eternal peace that we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth when Satan is banished and sin is no more. We will have shalom. We will have peace. But right now even, we have peace. Jesus himself is our peace. He made peace by reconciling us to each other and to God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, probably a favorite verse for many of you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's the result? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that's shalom, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's the shalom do? It it surpasses all understanding and it guards. that's, that's, That's much more than a lack of hostility. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. So that because the God of peace dwells in us, we can be people of peace. We can be people that, that exude shalom. That we don't need to be people that are fighting for our rights and fighting for our way. We can rather be people that are at peace with God and so can be at peace as far as it remains on us, right? As much as it, as much as it has to do with us, that we can be at peace. And when things are not peaceful, then we look forward to the final peace when the prince of peace comes and crushes the armies of satan and sets up his kingdom of shalom the apostle paul promises the romans the god of peace will soon crush satan under your feet and so the god of peace will do zechariah 9 9 through 10 promises a king coming on a donkey and we know that that's the triumphal entry but in verse 10 it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse, war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This great prince of peace will one day reign. And I pray that, that you remember that he is Yahweh Shalom, that he is the God of peace who gives you peace in a world that is spinning out of control seemingly when events are not known, when we don't know what's to come um, in Texas or in Oklahoma or in Garden Grove or in Long Beach or when we walk out those doors in a few minutes. He is the God of peace. Let me end 
by praying to this God of peace. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God, we thank you that you're the living God, that you've, you've given us life. And, and Lord, you're our rock that we can run to, that we can rest, that we can seek refuge in. And Lord, you are peace. You're peace. Prosperity and wholeness. Cessation of hostility. Lord, you have plans for your people that are for our shalom. So we pray as we go from this place that you'd remind us of that and that we would then in in turn be people that speak words of life that are not like people that are shifting sand in our friends' lives, but that we offer up a rock for people to rest on and that we can point to the rock. And Lord, that we can have some measure of peace in this world because in the most important sense, um, shalom has already been established because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he even now is sitting at your right hand. He's making a place for us. And someday soon, may it be, Lord Jesus, he's going to come back and establish peace on this broken earth. So Lord, we pray for peace and we pray for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.